Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I didn't really feel the same way as I do when I write now. I, I, like right now, I feel like when I'm writing these characters that embody these traits, I'm writing from a place of like pure authenticity. I'm not trying to be anything. I'm not trying to like, um, you know, pander to any sort of like, you know, you know, readership who, who wants things packaged in like a nice, neat bow. Now I'm just like being messy and that feels good. I'm Jordan Kissner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. James Han Matson is a novelist who was born in Seoul, Korea, and raised by his adoptive family in North Dakota. His second novel, Reprieve, was just published. It's currently a fall book pick by the New York Times, and it just knocked me out. It's told in a kind of prismatic way, with many different voices telling the story of a catastrophic event that takes place at a full-contact haunted house, which makes it sound maybe kind of Halloween-y, but the book is about so much more than horror or just haunted houses. It's also about race and gender and alienation and longing and the sex tourism industry and more that I won't share so as not to spoil anything. James and I got to talk about what felt to him like a watershed moment for his writing when he moved back to Korea after being gone for 30 years 
and the realizations that followed? I feel like my life is split between, you know, pre-Korea and post-Korea and everything post-Korea has been completely different from pre-Korea, including my, my writing life. Um, and when I say pre and post-Korea, I went to Korea when I was um, 30. Uh, it was after graduate school um, to reunite with my birth family because um, I'm an adoptee who grew up in North Dakota and I'm Korean. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's, there's this definitive split. And like, I didn't really think about it until um, just recently and how, how big that split has been um, just for my professional life. Uh, I didn't, you know, start publishing anything until after I came back from Korea. And I didn't really have a sense of what I was trying to write, I guess, before. I mean, I feel I feel like before I went to Korea, I had this sense that I wanted to be a writer. You know, I'd gone to graduate school. I'd, you know, I'd done, you know, I'd done workshop stuff. Um, but a lot of the writing that I was doing wasn't delving into the darkness, I guess, that I had to face uh, during those two years in Korea. And so when I was, so during those two years in Korea, I faced quite a bit of, quite a bit of struggle. And then, and, and after I came out of it, like my writing changed and I realized that, uh, all of my writing is going to be from now on tinged with, uh, a certain darkness. Um, and I think it came from the realization that, you know, I went to Korea thinking that, you know, I would try to be a Korean, you know, I wanted to be a Korean person. I'd, I'd led this life up until then of being, you know, a Korean American person, but not even really a Korean American person. Cause I was an adoptee. So I just felt like out of place everywhere I went, you know, I'd grown up in North Dakota as like one of the only Asian people in the whole town. Um, and like everywhere I went, I just really felt out of place. And so like when I decided to go back, I was like, I thought that there would be sort of this really warm welcome uh, for me just because I would be surrounded by a whole bunch of Koreans. Um, I would be around people who shared my blood. Um, I just really expected something uh, different than what actually happened. Um, not that I didn't experience, you know, warmth from uh, my, my birth family, but there was... It was just, it was just because I had such a desire to be Korean and I just couldn't, no matter how hard I tried, um, I, I just could not fit in to that world. Um, and I guess there is a realization then that occurred after those couple years that no matter where I was going to be, um, I was always going to sort of have this fractured identity. It wasn't ever going to be like just something that was that was just whole. And um, that was that was tough, and it was tough to tough to realize that. But I think after like you know months of you know dreary depression, thinking about that, um, I realized that I could use that in my work, like, um, that, that was actually a benefit in creating some sort of art, um, that sort of fracture, that sort of, um, uh, you know, just 
uh, yeah. So it just, it was just that I, I could, I could harness all of those, I, those senses of alienation and isolation that I felt my entire life, including the time that I was in Korea and, um, kind of channel that into creating characters that also felt this way. And so that's sort of what I do now. Like, and it, and it, the, the characters that I create aren't, don't necessarily share my own biography. I haven't yet written a Korean adoptee character, but they all share this sense of alienation and isolation. Yeah. Um, if it's okay, I want to sort of back us back up and yeah. ask what, I don't know, maybe the year before you decided, what, what sort of your preparations for moving back to Korea were? Did you have a, like a plan for working there? Why was this kind of the moment that you chose? Sure. Um, well, after graduate school, uh, I spent a year teaching. I went to the University of Iowa and I spent a year teaching in uh, the business college there. I just taught a writing class there. Um, and, you know, I was still in Iowa City and I was like, you know, I don't necessarily want to live in Iowa City forever. I was like, I could, I, I, so I was trying to think of like where I wanted to go. Um, but I was like, you know, I was 30 or maybe I was 31. I was actually 30. I turned 31 in the air. I remember. Okay. So I was, yeah. So I was 30 years old. Um, I didn't quite know where to go. And in the back of my mind, like all through, you know, my twenties, I'd always had this idea of going back to Korea. I had, um, I had reconnected with my birth sister. Like I'd known her since I was 17. I'd actually met her when I lived uh, in San Francisco in my early twenties. Um, so we were, we were in contact. And so I knew that if I went, I would have a place to stay. I would have, you know, I would be able to just, you know, ground myself a little bit before like going out into the country um, and, and making, you know, a life of my own. Uh, and I thought like, after I had finished that year teaching at the business school at the university of Iowa, I thought like, if I don't go right now, I have nothing, I have nothing holding me here. I have nothing holding me anywhere. If I don't go right now, I don't think I'm ever going to go. So I, uh, you know, I did research on jobs, um, and getting a job as an English teacher in Korea is extremely easy, uh, especially if you're, if you have an advanced degree. Um, so that wasn't very difficult for me. So I had, you know, interviews and stuff and, and got this, got this gig at, um, what's called a hagwon, which is, um, like an English cram school. Um, I had no idea what to expect in that sense, but, um, it, you know, I, I got that job and then, you know, I contacted my sister and I went and, uh, they, they met me at the airport and I, um, stayed with them. She had married a Russian man. So, uh, they spoke English and they just, they just had this child, um, who, you know, is now trilingual, speaks Russian, English, and Korean. Um, and so I stayed with them, uh, for a couple of weeks and I met the rest of the family. Uh, I met my other sister. I met my brother. Um, I met my grandmother, uh, all within, you know, a couple of weeks. Um, so I went there a couple of weeks before I had to start this job. And then interestingly, um, this is sort of going off, uh, on a tangent, but it, I think it relates to this, this sense of, 
of isolation, just even um, starting in my life in Korea. Um, so after two weeks, I had to go to this hotel because that that's where they were training people for this job. Um, and so there was a whole bunch of expats in this hotel in downtown Seoul. And they decided to, instead of having me teach in Seoul, that they were going to ship me down to Busan, which is a three-hour um, train ride uh, down to the south coast. And I was like, okay, I think I can make this work. I'll still be able to visit my... Uh, my birth family. I'll just, you know, it's only a three hour train ride. Um, and I'll get to explore this other, this other city on the South coast. Um, so I went down there and before they put you up in an apartment, they put you in a love hotel. I don't know if you know what love hotels are, but love hotels are just basically where, where men take prostitutes. Um, and so that's where they put me up for like a night. Um, and this is like, you know, my first, my, my introduction to Korea on my own. And so the next day I, so I stayed in love hotel one night and the next day I just, I think I went to like seven 11 or something to get something to eat. And then I came back, uh, to the hotel and the, um, the desk worker was like, you have a phone call. Um, I mean, she basically just thrust the phone at me because she didn't, we, she couldn't speak English. Uh, so I, I picked up the phone and like, I couldn't understand anything that was, that was being said. The only words that I understood were deadly disease, um, essentially saying that I had a deadly disease. And this was, <laughs> this was so, I, I mean, I can't even explain how, how alone I felt at that moment because this is what I thought. In order to come teach in Korea, you had to take an HIV test. And so I just assumed that my test had come back positive and that they were, this is what they were saying is that like I had this deadly disease and here I was alone in this, you know, love hotel, um, with, uh, you know, um, with nobody able to talk to me because I, I couldn't speak any English. Um, and so I, I thought that for the longest time. And they finally just said, go up to your room. A doctor will be there to see you very shortly. Uh, so I sat, you know, on the bed and just stewed. And um, I remember, I remember typing a, a, a message to um, my friend, Jenny Zhang, who is also a writer and just like saying, I can't believe this. I can't believe that like, you know, I'm alone in Korea and they're telling me that I have, I essentially have HIV. Um, but they, they, they had never said that they just said deadly disease. And I just like come to that conclusion. Anyway, um, finally the doctor came uh, and they were very nice. They, they asked if I was hungry and I wasn't, but they, they like still provided me with this like really soggy chicken sandwich. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so I just like nibbled on it and I was just like, what is going on? You need to tell me, you know, what's happening here. Um, and finally, finally, they told me that, uh, someone in my training group had contracted swine flu. And I was, and so like they were making everybody go back to Seoul to like be quarantined, you know? And I was like, I, this was like 
a huge sigh of relief. I was like, swine flu, like I, whatever, you know, I can handle that. Um, so I was like really actually kind of happy, I guess, with that, because I, I really thought that I was going to have to endure, you know, getting the, the news of being HIV positive in, in, uh, in Pusan in a, in a love hotel. Anyway, um, they ended up taking me in a, in a small green ambulance, um, back up to Seoul and putting all everybody who had, who had trained in the hotel in this like dorm facility, um, which was really cramped. And they put us like four in a room. Um, and they just kind of left us there. Uh, they didn't, they didn't take out the trash, you know, they, they just, they just left us there. And every morning there'd be like, um, somebody that came in and like took our temperature and we had to wear masks and everything. So it's kind of eerily, um, relevant to like what's going on right now. Um, but yeah, so we were just all quarantined and I was there for like two weeks. Um, and I feel like at that point, you know, this, again, this was like my introduction to Korea. I feel like at that point, something was really changing inside of me, like something like as far as like, cause I was, I was wanting to write something too, uh, about my experience in Korea. But like, at that point, I really felt like I didn't want to write about this. Um, and I haven't, I've only written like a few pieces about it. And, and I, I mean, I feel like I can delve into it now since I've had quite a bit of, um, space, uh, but back then, I think at that point, I was just like, this is, I don't, I don't want to write about this. This is my life. And I want to keep my life separate from, um, from my work. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a wild story. Um, once you got, once you got past that horrible experience, um, what was, what was, I guess, like the, the rest of your, the longer phase of your adjustment like to Korea? I want to hear, I guess, a little bit more about this dawning awareness that you had that this place wasn't going to be for you, maybe what you had hoped it would be. Yeah. Well, a lot of it came down to language. And I thought like I, I had been pretty good at languages, um, you know, all through high school and college. And so I, for some reason, I had thought because I spoke fluent Korean when I came to the U.S., I came to the U.S. when I was three, um, I thought that something in my brain would just reconnect with the language. And so I thought just being around it constantly, uh, I would just pick it up. Um, and so I was around it constantly and I was also taking classes in it, but I just wasn't connecting with the language it, it was it's it's difficult because the the grammar is not the same as english and i think part of the reason i had such a hard time connecting with it is because i spent so much time with the english language that the grammar was just uh, it was just very difficult for me to um to tran uh, to transfer over to that um so the lang l language you know really impeded you know, any sort of meaningful reactions I had with Korean people. And it was always sort of a, like a small heartbreak every time I tried to speak Korean and someone either switched to English or they just 
walked away or just were silent. And that happened all the time. You know, that happened every day um, where I would try to have a conversation, you know, a small conversation in Korean. And they would obviously know that I was, I, I did, I wasn't a, a native speaker. Um, and they would either get flustered because they didn't want to speak English or they would just switch to English. And I would just feel it would just, you know, depress me. Um, and that happened every day, um, all the time, like I said. And I think the culmination of all of those like heartbreaks, like constantly, uh, was what made me realize that I was never going to penetrate this culture because I didn't, as long as, you know, no matter how much I studied the language, no matter how long I was there, I was never going to be a native speaker, you know, and everyone is always going to regard me as a non-native speaker. And that was, that was difficult because, you know, the cult, so much of the culture rests in the language. And so, yeah, that's sort of when, uh, you know, I definitely realized that I wasn't ever going to be a, a, a full Korean person like I'd set out to be. And were you writing? During this time? I was. Actually, that's another, that's another thing. I mean, I, so I had been working on this novel in graduate school. Um, and, you know, I, I was, I, I was finished with the novel. And so I was sending it out uh, to agents. And I'd actually met with a few agents before I had come to, before I'd come to Korea. Um, and the agents, you know, kind of pushed my novel aside and they asked more about what I was doing in Korea. They asked like, you know, they were very, very interested in uh, the story of me, of my return. I mean, so much so that they even like had like a first scene of a memoir, like in their heads that they, you know, they told me about. And I, you know, at the time I was just like, well, I guess, you know, I could try to write a little bit of nonfiction about this experience. Um, and so I did, you know, I tried, but like I said, when I was at the, when I was at, at the quarantine facility, I sort of lost all interest in it. I, you can't really write a memoir as you're living it. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it sounds like a diary. Um, so I, I, I didn't, I started, I stopped writing it um, because I realized also while I was there, it's like, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to write about my life. I've always wanted to sort of separate my, uh, my fiction writing from my personal life, even though that's impossible. And I understand that now, but I feel like, um, you know, back then I really wanted to like, I really wanted to just write fiction about, um, characters that had lives very different from mine. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't believe now that you can, that there is like a definitive separation between, you know, self and, and art. Um, but I think back then I was really trying to make that point and that's why I stopped writing the memoir. You were saying earlier that you felt like that time when you were in Korea helped you sort of embrace a certain kind of fracture or darkness in your work. And I'm wondering if I am, I guess I'm quite curious, like what your writing had been like before that period. 
I had been trying to write comedy. Um, like the, like before I had, not that comedy can't be dark and the best comedy is pretty dark. Um, but I was, uh, before I had, uh, before I was in Korea, um, I, I'd written, you know, this comedic story about, you know, a bus boy in Minnesota who falls in love with this woman. It was, I wouldn't call it, it wasn't that it didn't hit on like some really, um, I don't know, some really interesting or important ideas about, you know, love and community and, um, and aging and all that stuff. Um, but it didn't hit on any ideas of like fracture and race and identity. And I feel like before Korea, I was actively avoiding writing about fracture and race and identity. And while I was in Korea, I realized that this is what I need to write about because this is where, you know, my soul is essentially. Um, so, uh, you know, when I came back or when I, when I was in Korea, I started writing on my first novel. Um, which is about a, uh, a teenager who, um, who ends up shooting one of his classmates and, and then kills himself after like, after a prank. Um, and it has to deal with, you know, uh, him coming to terms with, um, his sexuality and it has to come and it talks about like, you know, technologies, um, you know, how technology can, can separate us and bring us together at the same time. So, I mean, the, the ideas I think in my work before Korea were just a little bit less, uh, dense perhaps. It's not that they weren't important, but like, um, I think, I think after Korea they became, I just wanted to focus more on the, on the things that I had just talked about. I guess I'm curious to know when you knew that you wanted, that you really needed to, to turn um, some of what you were experiencing in Korea into not just like a personal experience, but also put it into your, into your art, into your writing. Um, and I don't expect it to be as pat as like, well, there was this day when I woke up from right. a dream where, you know, <laughs> someone was telling me, but I, I'm curious if it did feel like a, a, a kind of a conscious, um, dawning awareness. Yeah. I don't know if it actually, if, I don't know if there's an actual moment where I decided that I needed to, you know, take all of the stuff that I was experiencing in Korea and like, um, you know, sort of harness that and, and create art out of it i think like it's a lot of it is more in retrospect and and seeing like the way that my writing shifted um after like 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 during korea and after korea and like t 
trying to figure out why that actually happened and examining, um, you know, my life then and what was going on in my life and what would, what would cause this shift. And so like, it, it was more of like, it's more of a retrospective, to be honest. Like, I didn't have any singular moment where I was just like, okay, I'm going to write, you know, darker. I'm going to write about race. I'm going to write about, um, you know, fractured identities. It wasn't anything like a particular moment. It was more just like, like I don't know, like a, a, a feeling that I got just from experiencing such constant um, rejection, you know, from the culture, I think being beaten down like that every day, uh, just, you know, not let every, not that, any, not that people were purposely beating me down, but just like feeling beaten down every day, um, is what eventually, um, is what eventually like became, uh, you know, infused into my, into my art. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I want to get more into the way that that sort of pops up in, in your writing specifically, but before that, I wanted to ask, um, why did you decide when, and why did you decide to come back to the States? Well, I didn't come back to the States. I, right away, I, I went to South Africa for a year. Um, and, uh, that was almost, that was completely personal. I was, dating somebody. I was dating a South African in Korea. Um, and he wanted to go back home. And I was at that point ready to get out of, I was at that point ready to get out of, out of Korea, but, but I wasn't ready to go back to the States. So it was sort of a good bridge, so to speak. So I went to South Africa, um, that relationship sort of uh, fizzled. And then that's when I came back to the States. Um, but I hadn't planned on staying in South Africa all that long. I spent about a year there. It felt, I'll be honest, like when I, when I first came back, I ended up living with my sister who is also a Korean adoptee. Um, and she was living in the DC area. And so coming back to her was really quite nice because, um, you know, I didn't have like the constant, uh, problems that I was having in Korea. Um, you know, I could, I could communicate freely with everybody and like some of those problems also transferred over to South Africa as well. Um, but like, I didn't have any of that. And like her and I could just relate on this very fundamental level because not only were we Korean adoptees, but we'd also grown up in North Dakota. We just understood we understood each other. We understood where each other came from. Um, and so coming back and living with her for, uh, like just for a few months was, was like the perfect re-entry into, into the United States. Um, that sounds, that sounds really wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. That sounds pretty great. Um, so this, it's it's so interesting to hear you talking about this this as as like a pivotal moment in your in your writing life because a lot of what you're describing sounds so familiar from your your books and I just you know I just finished reprieve and there are so many characters who feel um misunderstood 
Yeah. In that book. And we get so much of so much pathos around that. Like there's so much sadness of someone who's being misunderstood and they may not be acting very, very well, but they're, it's coming from this place of real sort of desire to be seen and loved. And also we, you sort of see that that can have disastrous consequences. Right. Um, how did you, how much of that did, were you hoping specifically to, you know, use as your, as your operating themes for this book or did it also, did it kind of emerge as you went along? Well, I mean, I think those feelings that, um, of alienation and isolation that are imbued in the character. I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the character JD and how he is so, um, sort of, like America like intoxicates him in a certain way, but it's also like a, uh, like he, he fundamentally pushes back against it. Um, I feel like that sort of, that sort of fracture and that sort of like, um, you know, strange uh, push and pull um, is something that I've experienced just in this country, like since forever. And so um I think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of like how I feel about America and how I feel about, um, you know, having this particular identity in America, uh, was infused into, into his character in particular. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think all of my characters have a certain amount of sadness to them. And that is because there's a certain amount of sadness to me, you know, um, but I hope, you know, it's not, you know, it's not all just doom and gloom. I think there are moments of levity uh, in the book as well. I mean, like, I guess what I'm saying is like, I was, I've always tried to harness like um, that, that sadness and that, um, that sense of like uh, fractured identity and that sense of like this being this constant, uh, this constant foreigner, um, in my work and, and, and via the characters that I, that I create. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you like what you think you gained by being willing to put fracture or isolation or alienation, um, kind of at the heart of some of the, th- the themes that you're working with. I think what I gained is a certain authenticity. Like I, I think before, you know, all of the stuff that happened in Korea, I was trying really hard to write something um, that actively avoided these, I- these ideas. And like, that wasn't, I mean, writing them was, could be, you know, amusing. I mean, it could be fun at times and it could, do, you know, it could go into, you know, semi-dark places, but it never really... I never really felt like, you know, as I was writing them, this, I don't, I didn't really feel the same way as I do when I write now. And I, I, like right now, I feel like when I'm writing these characters that embody these traits, I'm writing from a place of like pure authenticity. I'm not trying to be anything. I'm not trying to like, um, you know, pander to any sort of like, you know, you know, readership who, who wants things packaged in like a nice neat bow. Now I'm just like, 
being messy and that feels good. Yeah. There is a, I, there is a kind of a, like, how do I want to say this? There's, it felt messy in a really good and ambitious way. Some of the, the kind of intersecting forms of alienation around race and sexuality and geography and nationality in Reprieve. I mean, there's so many conversations between characters of different races from different countries who are trying to understand each other and completely missing or offending each other sometimes on purpose and sometimes not. And there was, I, I found that really exciting because there is such a, um, I know a lot of people have feel tentative around writing complex scenes that deal with the question of racism where there are multiple different racial identities at stake or national identities at stake. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just wanted to ask you about how, how you decided to kind of shape those scenes and that element, that really kind of multidimensional messy element of a, of a group of people who are all trying to kind of um, make themselves understood with more or less uh, success. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you're going to talk about race and you're going to write about race, you, you owe it to a reader to, to write about it in a complex and nuanced way. And that isn't just, you know, black and white. It isn't like, you know, um, it, it, it's not, it's just not as simple as that. And like, I didn't want to write a book that, that had such explicit racial overtones and make it simple. Um, because that's just not how the conversation should go. We should be talking about lots of different facets of race and why, why we need to talk about race um, and the problem uh, that particularly this country has with race. And if you do that just from like a very concrete white black perspective, it just, it just becomes cheap. And like, it's, it's, that's meant for, you know, a Hallmark movie or something. It's just, it, it, there's nothing, you don't add anything to the conversation if you're going to do that. And like, I, I knew that I was going to write about, you know, I was going to write about race with this book. And I knew that if I was going to do that, I had to come at it in a way that was, um, that would spark some dialogue that maybe wasn't, you know, being sparked at, at, at the moment. Um, I mean, I, 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 when I started the book, I wanted to write about racial fetishism. That was, that was like the main thrust of the novel, the main thematic thrust of the novel. Um, and I hadn't really read a whole lot about racial fetishism in fiction. And so I, I thought like, this is a discussion that I, that I want to have. And so, um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write it through this, uh, through the lens of this novel. Um, but anyway, like, as far as like, just having like a whole bunch of, uh, of different types of people populate this book, um, for me personally, uh, there's something really, I don't know what the word is. There's something very satisfying for me to, to write about people who are having, um, uh, 
who are experiencing these difficulties in their lives in different ways than myself. So like if I write a black character, they're experience, they're experiencing like, you know, um, racism in a very, very different way than I have experienced racism. Um, but we've both experienced it in a different, in, in certain forms or the other. And so that, so they, they sort of become my tribe and like, you know, when you have like a fractured identity, like I do, you don't ever feel like you, you have much of a tribe because you don't like, there's not that many people who share the same identity as you. And, and a lot of times, you know, they're scattered geographically. So it's really hard to find your tribe, but like being able to, uh, inhabit another person who is experiencing something that is, you know, that elicits some of the same emotions as you, but is, is radically different in experience than you sort of makes you feel like, you know, just having this conversation with them makes you feel like you, you found some sort of tribe. And, uh, so it was really, um, rewarding, I guess, writing these different characters. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the concept of writing about racial fetishism where the like spine of the plot has to do with horror and a horror house. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When, when did that come to you in the process and how, how did that feel? How did those two ideas kind of integrate in your mind? Yeah. Well, when I started this book, I, I wanted, I was going to set it primarily in Thailand because, you know, racial fetishism, is on such brazen display uh, there. And it would just be easy to use, you know, the sex tourism industry as a way to uh, move these characters around um, that particular idea. Um, So I started started writing a book set primarily in Thailand, um, and I got quite a few pages in um, before I started becoming sort of obsessed with these full contact haunted attractions, which... I didn't really even knew existed. Um, but I, you know, I found out about them. I was just like, I can't believe people do this. I want to talk to people who do this. I want to talk to people who've started these things. Um, and so I did. And then I started writing sort of a separate story about a proprietor of a full contact haunted attraction. Um, and it had really nothing to do with my, with my Thailand story. Um, Anyway, so uh, at some point uh, down the road, I realized that these two stories thematically intertwined so well, because um, if you think of racial fetishism, what what you're doing when you fetishize a person racially is you're stripping them of humanity and and whittling them down to a few, um, you know, core stereotypes. Um, So they no longer become a person. They become like what you want them to be, you know, based on, based on stereotype, um, you know, and with horror in order to like enjoy horror, you have to dehumanize the person that's getting murdered, you know, otherwise like nobody can really enjoy that, um, unless you're some sort of, you know, psychopath. Um, but, but many, many people enjoy enjoy the horror genre. And I think it's because they can separate the human from, you know, the actual, uh, character getting, getting, uh, tortured and stuff. And so I thought thematically 
these two stories really worked well. Uh, so I decided to combine the stories and that was difficult. There was a lot of, there's a lot of sort of, um, structural fancy footwork that I had to do. Um, and a lot of the Thailand sections got scrapped. Um, and that was, you know, that was, that was okay. I, I was fine with that, but, uh, that's sort of how that, that came to be. I am just thinking about that answer. Yeah. Um, it was such a, I mean, like horrifying, obviously, but like in some ways, very pleasing, (laughs) like way of, of experiencing a plot arc, this, this like backing and forthing between deposition and story. Um, and the, I thought it was also interesting, the decision to kind of let the reader know that a calamity has happened at the very beginning so that the book is then working backwards, working backwards to the end we've already had. Yeah. Yeah. I was more, I was way more interested in like, um, you know, examining how everything happened than like who, you know, did it. So it's not like your typical mystery where you're trying to figure out who the murderer is, you know, the murderer and, and the victim almost right away. I was much more interested in like, you know, examining how everyone got there and why they were there. I think the last thing that I wanted to ask you is about what for you the the stakes feel like going forward of continuing to make work that feels messy, that feels complicated, that infuses um, some of the fragmentation or brokenness or sadness or just honesty um, that you've been talking about. Like what feels urgent to you about that project in your in your next work, in your coming work? I think uh, everything that I write is going to be infused with that. Um, It feels good to write from that place. And I think that's how I'll always write. I mean, I I wouldn't go so far as to say it's therapeutic, um, even though it could be. Uh, So I'll always write from from that place. Uh, As far as like subject matter, you know, you can do anything, you know. I mean, if, if like... If you're writing from that place, if you're writing from a place of like, you know, what we talked about, you know, the fractured identity and like, um, uh, you know, sadness or, or, or whatever, um, you know, as, if you're writing from that place, you can, you, you can write about anything. And my next project is, is vastly different from Reprieve, but it still contains the elements that, um, that reprieve has. And so, to, and, and, and my first novel as well, um, th- those elements that we just, that we just discussed. Threshold is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.